Hi, this is Monica Lopez. Before we get to our podcast, I want to let you know that Making Contact is supported mostly by our listeners. We're a nonprofit shop with a small yet mighty team. In other words, a little goes a long way for us, and a little more goes a lot longer. So if you can, please go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. This week on Making Contact. Clearly, racism has devastating impacts on people of color, and I think it also has serious impacts on white people. Uh, one is that um, we're being exploited by the same ruling class that's exploiting people of color. And yet we're unable to work together across those differences because we've been trained to see people of color as dangerous, as outsiders. So we're we're very easily led to believe that recent immigrants or Muslims or people of color in our cities or Native Americans, whoever, are the enemy, are the ones who are... Uh, you know, attacking us when, in fact, it is a ruling class. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll discuss opposing racism, white fragility, useful strategies, and practical tools for white individuals committed to racial justice. We'll speak with author Paul Kibble about his book, Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. The book suggests ways for individuals and groups to challenge the structures of racism. First, Paul, let me welcome you to Making Contact. And your book, Uprooting Racism, was published in the 1990s. And many years later, the book still holds a particular relevance considering our existing political climate and the overt reemergence of white nationalist rhetoric. First, in simplicity, but necessary in shaping today's conversation, how would you define racism? I define uh, racism as a system of domination of wealth and power used by the ruling class to elevate white people, um, to give them benefits so that they'll buy into the system, accept the status quo, and that subordinates, uh, exploits, and and, uh, uses violence against people of color um, to maintain that. Mm-hmm. It operates, I think it's important to notice that it operates on several different levels. One is the interpersonal level. One is the institutional level. Mm-hmm. It operates on the structural level, the interactions of all those institutions, and then also on the cultural level. Well, let's be more specific. What would be some of the concrete material benefits that one may not immediately identify, but mm-hmm. you would see as uh white folks in our society being classified uh, would receive certain privileges based on their skin? I think it's it's clear that as white people, we receive benefits such as better access to housing, better access to education, better access to health care. Um, if you think about who makes your clothes, uh, who makes your cell phone and computer, who grows the food that we eat, um, it a lot of that is done by uh, people of color in this country and overseas. And so both on the one hand, we benefit and we are connected. We are interdependent with people of color, those of us who are white. And at the same time, we have to realize that most of the benefits from racism are accumulated at the top of the economic pyramid. So that the 1% or the 
really the 0.1%, um, accumulates most of the wealth, most of the power and benefits. So uh, it's true that all of us who are white benefit in some ways, and we're also exploited, and those benefits accrue to the top of the economic pyramid. Now, there's a chapter in the book titled White Fragility and White Power. I think the power part is self-explanatory. People get it, right? However, define white fragility and how is it used uh, to avoid dealing with racism? uh, And uh, how do those responses impact people of color? White fragility is a term that Robin DiAngelo, I think, uh, coined. And uh, it describes the way that, you know, part of how white... Uh, whiteness is maintained and racism is maintained is through silence in white communities, mm-hmm. not talking about it mm-hmm. um, and not in denying it, minimizing it. So <clears throat> when people of color raise the issue of, of racism, uh, describing their experiences, uh, white people have a range of different ways that they express their fragility around that, their inexperience, their lack of skill and practice at even talking about racism. Sometimes that looks like a direct aggression, um, shutting people down, denying their experience. Some li- sometimes it looks like passivity, um, uh, withdrawing. Um, there's a lot of kind of range of ways, but all of those ways are ways to really counterattack, to mm-hmm. sh- shut down the discussion so that racism, the, the attention turns to the feelings of the white person rather than the actual experience of a person of color. Right, right. I experienced that from good-meaning white folks. It, uh, exactly. It has nothing to do with intention. It's about impact. Right. And as white people, we like to think we're good people. Uh, we have the best of intentions, but that doesn't mean that we're not colluding with and perpetrating racism uh, in our daily interactions. How can white folks, uh, well-meaning white folks, check their privilege at the door, uh, be it you know in a uh, personal relationship, friendship that you may have with someone, but maybe also someone or a person of color, I should say, rather, uh, but also in working environments, uh, you know, I've had these various experiences where, you know, it's like you are not accepting no for an answer or you're telling me one instance in particular. Uh, I think she was well-meaning white woman was like, uh, I want to help you do your job. But she never thought to ask me what I thought was needed to help me do my job better. So it was automatically that she's working from a position that she already knew, even though she hadn't been here as long or the, the same amount of experience that I had. So it's like, how do you have them in the space? How, how are white people to check their privilege or their notions of superiority in the conversation around racism and, and moving forward and being more an advocate than, than anything else? I think it's really important that um, as white people, we have to realize that we've been socialized into the system. We've been socialized into expectations of entitlement, of superiority, um, all the education and culture we've absorbed tells us the white people are superior, are in charge. They've been the heroes and builders and doers and creators in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we, if we just show up with all of that baggage, all of that misunderstanding, uh, we're, we're obviously going to just perpetrate more racism. We have to step back and, and do some personal work. We have to learn more about history. We have to learn more about what's going on. And particularly, we have to listen. We have to come in with a lot of humility, mm-hmm. um, not expecting to have the answers, not expecting to be in charge, expecting to ask questions, to learn, 
to find a way to participate that doesn't perpetrate or recreate those same patterns of dominance that were uh, that are ingrained in, in us through our socialization. Right. I mean, in many ways in uh, various situations that uh, experience microaggression, um, I, I think it's really interesting because I feel like people already know that people have a certain level of education and understanding, yet it's easier to do the opposite of what we know is right. Um, one thing for me in particular, multiple times on this particular program, I've stated that privilege is an addiction, um, be it privilege one receives from being white in America or male, do you see privilege as an addiction? What's your take on that? I, th- I think it, it's an addiction, uh, I would agree, in the way that it's rewarded constantly. You get hits uh, of affirmation mm-hmm. <laughs> regularly. It's certainly a deep-seated habit mm. of thought yeah. and behavior that that's internalized into our emotional being and into our uh, the way we think. So um, that's why I think we could use the terms such as white supremacy or white hegemony or uh, they're so deep-seated that we don't recognize it. And mm-hmm. therefore, we need to be – to realize that we need to look to people of color to and, – and honor and credit their experience and their knowledge because we are, we are going to be the last – to be able to notice that. Yeah. I definitely think there's a, a re-education and unlearning process that one has to be willing to participate in and really do the work because it would be like overcoming any addiction, you know, right. and you can have relapse, you know, at right. any given moment. So I think it's being more conscious and aware of your actions and how you exist in the society, um, especially when you're rewarded for right. a certain behavior. Um, moving forward, though, I wanted to kind of get your sense of what do you see as the cost of racism as it relates to white people. We understand that the cost that it may have or impact that it may have on communities of color, black and brown communities and so forth. I kind of want to have you describe uh, the cost that you see to white people regarding their own silence and uh, complacency in existing in a racist society. Clearly, racism has devastating impacts on people of color. And I think it also has serious impacts on white people. Uh, one is that I kind of obliquely referred to earlier is that um, we're being exploited by the same ruling class that's exploiting people of color, and yet we're not unable to work together across those differences because we've been trained to see people of color as dangerous, as outsiders. So we're we're very easily led to believe that recent immigrants or Muslims or people of color in our cities or Native Americans, whoever, are the enemy, are the ones who are, uh, you know, attacking us when, in fact, it is a ruling class. So one of the costs is that we're unable to work with our allies um, in changing, really transforming our society to one that serves all of us. There's tremendous um, emotional costs. Uh, white people live very segregated lives in general. We're very isolated from communities of color. So we're cut off from the, the brilliance and the creativity of communities of color. We end up having a false sense of history, of our own histories, our family histories, our cultural history, because of the lies and misinformation we're fed. Um, we're told that white people have done everything of significance and people of color are you know, uh, need us to to save them. Um, also, I think there's deep psychic uh, and uh, spiritual cost mm-hmm. to being 
in a society and living our lives dependent, interdependent with people of color, our uh, benefits coming at the exploitation of people of color, uh, that has a that 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 has deep impact on our personal integrity. When we don't speak out and challenge the injustice that we're implicit, complicit with, then then those are really serious wounds to our integrity, our our soul, our spirituality. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with you on that. And I, I remember one of the first individuals, not the first first, but someone who I remember being a guest on this program would be Dr. Joy DeGruy, and she talked a bit about the spiritual uh, impacts of silence and uh-huh. uh, the horrors that white people witnessed and almost, or not well, not, not almost, but witnessed and embraced such as lynchings as if it was uh, normal and something that folks did. And then pushing across that conversation, she was like, well, this is why folks can see you know, Trayvon Martin being murdered and not see anything wrong with it because there is a spiritual uh, loss. You know, that's that's been the impact for right. white folks. Which you, you, so you right. would agree with that? Absolutely. It, it destroys our compassion, our sense of empathy with other people. It sets up barriers between us and a lot of the world. And that, that has soul-destroying impact. Mm-hmm. Listening to an interview with Paul Kibble, the author of Uprooting Racism How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. And this is Making Contact. If today's conversation has provided you with food for thought, take a minute and subscribe to our podcast. Sign up for Making Contact updates. Take our survey or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Making underscore Contact. Now back to the conversation with Paul Kibble discussing ways for individuals and groups to challenge the structures of racism. Um, this is the fourth revised and updated edition of this book. So that means that <laughs> there is right. still a need, right? We're, Which, s- we're still there. <laughs> now, what kind of feedback have you received privately from <laughs> other white folks? Have any of them attempted to call you a race traitor, that uh, how dare you as a white man even legitimize uh, this conversation around about racism? That happens sometimes. I've, I've received hate mail and, and things like that, um, comments in right-wing uh, uh, magazines and stuff like that. Um, you know, it goes with the territory. Um, those, those aren't the people I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, Mostly, I think today, especially today, there's more and more white people who are aware we're, we're in deep trouble, that racism is part of that deep trouble, and that they want to do something. And so they're very appreciative of a book like Uprooting Racism, which is really a toolbox of information and history and guidelines and questions and um, a lot of information that can help them get involved because there's a lot of personal work we need to do, but ultimately we need to get out into the community and be working for racial justice. Mm -hmm. And so that is the end goal of my work and and what I think a lot of people want to be doing. Where do we miss the mark? Where do we go wrong, especially when we think 
about the disconnect. Uh, here we are with the 45th president being Donald Trump. Uh, much of his rhetoric would embrace and uplift and support white supremacist thought. You have, in certain situations, uh, good-meaning white folks that have supported him. Uh, some folks are waking up now. But where did we go wrong in the larger conversation of addressing racism in our society to the point where we would actually elect someone like Donald Trump and even have white folks not see how detrimental he could be to their own existence and survival in this United States? That's a good question. Um, Donald, uh, the president's support came, the majority of it came from fairly well-off white people, well-educated and well-off with higher average incomes than most white people. Um, And clearly he lost the popular vote. I think that where we've gone wrong is to not acknowledge the history of and legacy of racism and the way that it permeates our society today. We've been reluctant to have those conversations, and our silence has been complicity with the status quo. And so after the civil rights movement, people could start talking about a post-racial society. And after Obama was elected, it kind of confirmed for many white people that, well, we're doing okay. And in, in polls, even in the last year or two, Uh, The majority of white respondents said racism wasn't a major problem in our country, Mm. and they said it wasn't in their community. So one thing is that we've often seen racism as something over there. I grew up in California. I thought racism in the 50s and 60s was only in the South. Um, And, you know, we're, we're always looking for it's not here, it's not me, it's not us, it's not now, it's historic, it's over there, it's other people. We have to say it is here. And I'm involved, and I need to do something, and we, and we need to train and educate our young people to be able to recognize racism, to have the moral courage to stand up and intervene and get involved in racial justice work. Now, you said a majority of white folks who are well off financially supported Trump, but I remember seeing in certain, you know, southern beds, uh, poor white folks who said, yeah, I want to keep my job. I want to keep the job in the coal mine. And, you know, those folks also voted for him. But he, when you look at his platform then versus now, you know, we're talking about losing jobs. We're talking about losing health care that would also benefit those financially challenged white folks as well. What's your take on that? I think that we have a long history of blaming other people, Mm -hmm. scapegoating uh, immigrants, uh, people that... um, um, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans, Latinics, um, a bunch of um, people that we could, that the ruling class has directed our attention to and given us constant information about how dangerous they are and how they're taking our jobs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we haven't been doing the education and and base building that we need to be doing to counter that and refocus the attention on the real power structures in our society, the billionaires who are making the decisions to ship jobs overseas, to strip our communities of resources, to privatize the education and health care and prison industrial systems. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's – as white people collectively – we have a lot of work to do to catch up to the current reality. And the current reality is not new with this president. It's the longstanding patterns, and we've been— um, Hoodwinked and bamboozled. 
<laughs> exactly. And complacent yeah. because we yeah. have – we've given some few benefits, partly their psychological benefits that were, pe- that were better than, at right. least were not people of color. And then there's some tangible economic and material benefits that we can walk down the streets and not be stopped by police, um, that we can – get into schools and get, uh, get our children uh, an education mm-hmm. that isn't available to people of color often. Right, right. You know, uh, a lot of our listeners, not all, but some of them uh, would say that they identify with the hip-hop generation. They grew up in that particular era. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you've, we've had, or one thing that I've heard people such as Russell Simmons say or, or Jay-Z is that hip-hop has done a lot to bring the races together. Uh, it's been, you know, they even has gone as far as saying that, you know, done more than the civil rights movement. I think that's debatable. (laughs) Uh, But when you think about hip hop and how you could have young white kids partying with young black kids and uh, brown kids and Asian kids, there is a melting pot that exists, but it only exists within a small spectrum. Those white kids leave, they go off to college and they forget about, there's a, again, that disconnect around, hey, my favorite hip-hop artist is a Wu-Tang Clan, but yet I can easily vote against something that may impact those young kids, you know, three-strike laws, and, and so on and so forth. Explain to me, if you're able to, how does that happen? Like, I'm just trying to understand, like, how do you embrace a particular culture and still, you know, and, and some of these some of these kids are like, my friends, right? <laughs> you know, right. and then we have to have these real conversations mm-hmm. where we challenge each other and these particular pathologies because the thought is that Anita is different. Anita is not a criminal. But once I leave out of that circle, right, all the other white people view me as a criminal. And you have these same kids that say, well, Anita doesn't exist in that group of being quote unquote criminal, but they vote on legislation, legislation that would in turn, criminalize me. It's like, you know, you have some of these same groups of white folks that would love Michael Jackson and Prince, but not see him as black. Mm-hmm. Help me understand that. I think that's complex. There's a couple of different things I, I just mentioned briefly. One is that one of the ways that racism works is through um, cultural appropriation of the cultures and um, religions and and music and art of communities of color. And, you know, hip-hop is often appropriated by young white people. Um, And uh, you can take the culture and leave the people behind. Um, And there's a lot of people who love jazz or rock and roll or hip-hop or all kinds of, of manifestations of black culture, Native American culture, whatever. And, um... And that doesn't actually lead to understanding of institutional patterns of racism, nor a commitment to actually get involved in working for racial justice. The other part of uh, thing that, that I would mention is that there's part of the way racism works um, is to allow white people to exoticize people of color and to eroticize them, um, so that those cultures and those relate even those relationships become something you do because it's exotic, um, it's countercultural, it may be against the family norms or the community norms, um, and also that it's eroticized, it's, it's enticing, it's tantalizing. And so a lot of young people, and of course this is marketed to them by white 
music executives, um, industry people who are making the decisions to market uh, hip-hop music to white teenagers, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not even that people of color have control at the economic level of the industry. And and it's very much exoticized and eroticized in, in youth, uh, white youth culture. Mm-hmm. Moving forward in, in the conversation of what an ally is, and this is also another chapter <clears throat> in your book, uh, focusing on the hip-hop aspect for a minute, um, for the BET Awards, which is Black Entertainment. I don't know if Paul thought he was going to <laughs> be participating in a hip-hop conversation that's, to some extent. No, that's, that's fine. That's, that's, it's right there in the middle of it. Okay, excellent. So... BET, Black Entertainment Television, uh, there was a cipher. Eminem was one who uh, did a freestyle where he bashed Trump. Actually, right now, let's take a listen to the verse by Eminem that I'm referencing. uh, And then once we come back, we'll discuss further. That this is for Colin, ball up a fist. And keep that ish ball like Donald the... He's going to get rid of all immigrants. He's going to build that thing up taller than this. Well, if he does build it, I hope it's rock solid with bricks. Because like him in politics, I'm using all of his tricks. Because I'm throwing that piece of this shit against the wall till it sticks. And any fan of mine who's a supporter of his, I'm drawing in the sand a line. You're either for or against. And if you can't decide who you like more in your split on who you should stand beside, I'll do it for you with this. The rest of America, stand up. We love our military and we love our country. But we hate Trump! Again, that's Eminem at the BET Awards, uh, his anti-Trump verse that he spat at the BET Awards. My question to you, Paul, is what's the role of an ally? I think that for me, an ally is not an identity. It's a practice. It's what you do. It's how you show up. And it's not how you show up once in a while. It's how you show up every day. Um, As white people, we have opportunities all the time in our families, neighborhoods, workplaces, communities, to, to show up as an ally. Um, it's great that people make statements, but um, especially if they have high profiles, but there's a whole lot more to do, and that has to be a regular effort. Um, and that means addressing the institutional patterns in the music industry, if you're in, in hip-hop or uh, another area like that, or in the... Um, the issues, the other issues that are up in front of us in terms of policing and, and police violence and educational disparities and health care disparities and immigrant bashing. And there's just lots of ways. If you have a high profile, then you need to be working not only on the outside publicly, but on the inside of those institutions that you're part of to be building a different kind of structure there. Absolutely. Uh, in your book, you provide useful strategies and practical tools for white people committed to racial justice, how can white people work towards and for justice? I think there's there's so many ways because, you know, we have different positions, skills, experience. Uh, w- the first thing is to educate ourselves. The second thing is to break the silence and start talking about racism with our white communities. Um, the third thing is to 
leverage our resources. Um, we have time and money and access to uh, institutions and access to white people and white youth and all kinds of ways that we actually you can turn our benefits into resources in service of racial justice. And then the final thing is really to pay attention to what people of color are saying and what they're doing, especially those who are on the front lines of grassroots struggle, um, because that's where the work needs to be in supporting those efforts, which are leading the way towards a real transformation of our society. And that wraps it up for us today here on Making Contact. Special thanks to Paul Kibble, the author of Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. To learn more about Paul Kibble or Making Contact, check out our website at radioproject.org. We'd like to know your thoughts about today's program. You can share your thoughts or provide us feedback about today's show by logging onto our homepage. That's radioproject.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Sign up for Making Contact updates. Take our survey or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. It would be great to hear from you. The Making Contact team is Lisa Rudman, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and Vera Tykolsker. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.